Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Last week, we had a great episode outlining what to watch in the new Supreme Court term. And because we're a legal podcast, we just can't quit you, High Court. So later in the show, we'll be joined by senior employment reporter Vin Guerreri, who'll walk us through oral arguments held this week in a closely watched employment case. It centers on whether employment contracts that force workers to forego the ability to bring class actions runs afoul of federal labor law. And my co-hosts and I are big Tom Petty fans, so at the end of the show, we'll discuss a copyright dispute that gives a glimpse into the kind of laid-back guy he really was. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Bill, what do you want to talk about up top? I hear you got some some things you want to discuss well, get, get with get off us. your chest here. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up last week's show, Amber, because there was some uncertainty after last week's show. You guys may remember that I sort of jokingly mentioned that um, that I had quit Law 360. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I said, did everyone think you really quit? I said I was going to go be a, 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 one of those guys who <laughs> like ran, the runner. ran yeah. back and forth with the opinions and shook them yeah. and, and everything else. Uh, <clears throat> Ann Erda, our intrepid editor-in-chief yeah. here at Law 360, uh, apparently got, got, got pinged by a family member questioning whether or not I had quit, saying, did did Bill just quit on the air? So the better the, <laughs> the better question is, did this person say, oh, no, Bill quit? Or did they say, thank God, Bill quit? Great question. <laughs> Unclear. I'll ask her. This, but here's the, here's the real key. I mentioned later in the same segment that I was illiterate. So... I don't know if I don't know if, if we're just taking everything I say at face value, but no, definitely do not. I think what it is, people uh, love Bill Donahue yeah. so much mm-hmm. that couldn't even finish that segment. Mm-hmm. Couldn't even get through it. Just Hit heard pause, the word through the iPod yep, against exactly, the wall. Exactly. Exactly. What? <laughs> yes, in um, 2010. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You got the four buttons on there. That's not the only thing, though. Uh, Vidya Corey, our tax reporter, mm-hmm. uh, you guys, when I was out two weeks ago yeah. and Jody was in, you guys, you made a joke, I think, like, Alex is gone. He's he's out because mm-hmm. Jody did such a great job. Mm-hmm. She thought you were serious. The same thing happened to me. She was like, where are you going? Where are you off to? And it's just like, we got to. So we really have to soft pedal our jokes, I think. This is, is the... why I don't let anyone joke about me leaving. I'm going <laughs> to die on this podcast, everybody. I'm going <laughs> to be booth. here forever. I'm never leaving the show. My skeleton leaned up against the, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. against That's the what glass I planned. here. Yeah. That's what I have planned. So, uh, what's going to keep me here forever, guys? What do we want to talk about? <laughs> I've got a good one. Yeah. So, Winston and Strawn LLP was sued last month by a former client. After winning the, the client, a $42 million verdict. Okay. Seems all right to me. Oh, wait. That's not how it goes at all. <laughs> not, no. So they not won generally. $42 million and still mm-hmm. got sued. What what happened? Yeah. So Winston repped a company called MJC Supply. Um, it was this sort of sprawling state and federal litigation against a former business partner, uh, Gree Electric Appliances. Um, they had this like $150 million joint venture that sold dehumidifiers and other home comfort products uh apparently everything went south the things were catching fire or blowing up or something I, not know, good stuff not right. great things so that led to litigation <laughs> things all came to a head uh there was a three-week trial in the spring of 2015 the jury came back for mjc with a 42 million dollar verdict including 30 million in punitive damages great so, job winston good job right yeah not a great job oh, okay. so mjc says that there was this series of errors that Winston did that either added costs for the client or cut down on what the jury 
would have given them. They said that Winston failed to tender, um, which means that they didn't notify right. uh, MJC's insurers of the case, meaning that some of the stuff that the insurer would have covered litigation-wise was not covered and was left to them to pay for, um, that they they dropped this $7 million claim saying like, oh, we'll bring it later in state court, knowing that like they couldn't because the state court action was too far along to mm, bring it or they okay. should have known. They said they recommended a settlement with uh, another one of MJC's insurers that was, you know, not in the client's best interest. They charged unreasonably high fees, yada, 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 all sorts of different things. So like things. a kitchen sink of yes. things yeah. that they alleged Saying, were, yeah. were bad lawyers. All basically. told that there were $14 million in damages from the various things that Winston allegedly did wrong okay so they saying they left some money on the table basically what's yeah. uh what does the firm have to say well i'm not going to quote the 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 explicit <laughs> line but everyone's seen goodfellas when yeah. <laughs> when someone is repeatedly told to uh screw you pay me yeah um that's basically the firm's position is okay. that you know we gave them the bill after winning them a case and they disputed it and this is sort of a meritless in, in their quote to our reporter, Andrew Strickler, who wrote the story, that, quote, a meritless attempt, end quote, to avoid paying the costs of, of taking the case to trial and, and securing the verdict. You, you, you know what's really funny to me mm-hmm. when I was reading the story and getting ready for the show? It's like, okay, so MJC is now suing Winston because mm-hmm. they say, like, they didn't represent them well enough or didn't give them enough money. I want to know who the firm is that took this case <laughs> for MJC. And if it doesn't go well, you create this Russian nesting doll of... Of litigation. Well, it's more like people. Who, it's people more like who people. You. It's more like people who date someone who cheated on someone else. Right. Like you start dating someone new, and when they were cheating on someone, you can't help but like, think. How can how can you know? You know. Very similar to that. It's the exact same thing <laughs> when you think about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, this is one that uh, it's just it's such a weird thing to win a really big verdict. I wonder if they ever worked together before. That wasn't clear from the thing, but yeah. you know. But definitely an interesting one. It's a weird hook to see someone winning like a $40 million verdict and then getting sued for not doing a good enough job. Yeah, and we'll be following up to see if they actually win yeah. any of those $14 million in damages they say mm-hmm. they're owed. So, Alex, I think you have a bit of an update as the story you want to talk about today. Yeah, you know, there are so many things to laugh at on the Internet. And so I want you to wind your internal clock back to a simpler time. Let's say around June. You all remember our friends who set up the Firefest. Uh, which was, you know, billed on social media as the concert event of a lifetime. And when people showed up to this strip of beach on the Bahamas, there's basically nothing there but, like, you know, some... Wild like, dogs. Yeah, wild dogs ravaging the beach and, like, some like sad cheese, cheese sandwiches. Cheese sandwiches. Yeah, that's and, what... I think in 20 years we're all going to remember the cheese sandwiches from Firefly. Yeah, ra- ramshackle huts. Uh, yeah. It was a total disaster, and it unfolded in real time on social media. Everybody had a good laugh about it, um, but... Uh, not very many people are laughing now because, as you can imagine, uh, litigation has uh, started to pick up a lot of steam and it's sort of working its way through the courts uh, right now. So catch me up on what roughly the the claims were and sort of what's been happening since we talked about it last. Well, by my rough count, there's at least a dozen legal actions in, in some phase uh, stemming from this thing. But the one we're going to talk about today, the one with the most meat on the bone, is making its way through Manhattan federal court right now. And it's a criminal case brought by Manhattan prosecutors on behalf of investors who say that they got a raw deal in looking to bankroll this, you know, abortive concert. <laughs> All those <effort>. cheese sandwiches. So, <laughs> we thought we were buying more than cheese. So how much did they pay for those cheese sandwiches, right. essentially? Yeah, well, in the new charging documents uh, that were filed this week in court, uh, the prosecutors claim that 
Um, the investors were scammed out of about $20 million, which is a lot of cheese sandwiches if you're trying to tally at home. Uh, but basically, the newest developments were um, when this case got off the ground in July, there was basically just one charge of like wire fraud. And uh, this week, that got beefed up. The uh, organizer of the Firefest is a man named Billy McFarland, and he's the he's the lone defendant in this case. The non-Ja Rule partner. Yeah, good note there. Ja yeah, Rule, that's true. Yeah, uh, yeah, Ja Rule was also involved in the organization. He's named in some other suits, though not this one, because it's an investor suit. From what I can tell, uh, perusing these documents, Ja Rule does not appear to have been a money man uh, okay. in this operation. So this is against Billy McFarland, who bears a striking resemblance to Brody Jenner from like season four <laughs> of The Hills. I know uh, exactly which Brody Jenner you're referring so to. It, it's a yeah. specific it's uh, like a, file on the Brody Jenner. Yeah. yeah, it's a cool manly reference. <laughs> anyway, so it started out with just one charge of wire fraud against him. And now uh, it's been beefed up to two wire fraud charges and two charges of lying to banks. So there's four charges against him now. And that's sort of where we stand now. And they and they float. This is the first time they floated out this $20 million you know, fraud number. So so he pled in this case this yeah, week? Yeah, he, he entered a not guilty plea this week. And the next sort of benchmark to watch here is the court set a pretrial date for December 13th. But there is reason to think we may not get there. One interesting thing that happened was while he entered his plea, he also waived his right to receive um, a grand mm -hmm. jury indictment mm -hmm. and instead worked directly with the prosecutors, yeah, yeah. which if you follow this stuff, you know it's right. an indication that a plea deal is in the works somewhat. And prosecutors have said, they're in talks to do that. So, you know, I don't know. I'm not a prognosticator, but I think if it were to go to trial, I think his best hope would be to just think that, uh, you know, the Manhattan prosecutors were as good at, you know, structuring a case as he was at structuring a concert. <laughs> Maybe he shows up to the courthouse and no one's there and they just have, screw and they it, just, let's they just do it and a... be legends. <laughs> yes. And just a feral dog walks through the courtroom. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's all that would but, happen. But I don't like his chances on that front. So, uh, yeah, you know, keep your eyes on it if you're uh, interested in the fate of the Firefest organizers. Thanks for bringing that, Alex. Thanks. This week, the Supreme Court kicked off its term with a trio of cases over whether employers can force their workers to sign away their rights to class action claims. Law 360 senior employment reporter Vin Guerrieri was in court to hear the arguments, and he's with us today to break down the case and tell us how he thinks the justices are leaning. Hey, Vin. Hey, hey, guys. How are you? Thanks for coming back to the show. The pride of Bay Ridge. <laughs> the pride of Brooklyn. Yeah, okay. Bay Ridge. The, the, yeah, right. <laughs> so, <Get it> right. <laughs> so now that we've established that, everybody, um, Ben, can you just set up what this case was about and what was argued in court since you were down there in D.C. to hear it all? Absolutely. So this is a bit of a complicated case. There's a lot going on here. Try to unpack it as simply as I can. In 2012, the NLRB found that it's illegal under the National Labor Relations Act for any employer to have an arbitration agreement that includes what are called class waivers. Class waivers basically means that an employee is signing away any right to pursue a class action. Could be anywhere. Could be in a federal court. Could be in arbitration itself. Wherever it may be, they can't pursue it collectively. Mm -hmm. So the NLRB says under its law, the NLRA, they can't do that. That's illegal. And it goes against the NLRA's protection of concerted activity. Mm -hmm. All employees have the right to to band together for 
any any work-related purposes. So, for example, if a, a group of employees feels they're being underpaid, they can all walk into the boss's office and say, hey, we have a problem here. We're not being paid correctly. And the NLRB and, and other labor proponents say that's really important because if you can't band together, you might not be able to vindicate your rights. Strength in numbers, right. basically. So if one person is complaining, it might not be taken as seriously by management as if 20 people are complaining sure. or 50 people are complaining. So employers were putting these things into your contract that says you can't join a class action. Correct. Right. And the, and the NLRB said that, that that violated that that protection for concerted activity. Correct. Right. So the issue here is whether they can have these sorts of clauses. The issue isn't whether arbitration is okay. That's been established long, long ago by the Supreme Court. It's just a matter of whether employers have the ability to tell employees or to make employees, that's probably a better way of putting it, to take away their right to that sort of class action or collective action. Sure. So I really feel like I understand what the NLRB is arguing, but what's the main argument for the employer side? Yeah, so the big one is kind of the interplay between the NLRA and the Federal Arbitration Act. The Supreme Court over the years, they've taken a very strong view of arbitration. So they've interpreted the FAA to basically mean that arbitration agreements have to be enforced the way that they're written. And in this case, if they're written with the class waiver, employers are arguing that you have to enforce the class waiver because that's what the arbitration agreement demands. So does the Federal Arbitration Act supersede the NLRA? That's kind of one of the, if not the key issue of this case. So how many people does this impact? It sounds like this would apply potentially to millions of people. Uh, probably even more than that. So this week was the oral arguments before the Supreme Court. A few days before arguments, the Economic Policy Institute released a study that they did in conjunction with a law professor at Cornell University. They said that about 60 million people nationwide are subject to an arbitration agreement if they're there's some qualifications to it. So people who are in private industry and aren't unionized. So about 60 million of those people right now are subject to arbitration agreements. About 25 million people have class waivers as part of those arbitration agreements. So that's 25 million non-unionized private workers that if they wanted to bring a class action contractually right now, they can't do it. So we can see why the Supreme Court got involved here. Yeah. So, Vin, your story had an interesting piece in it about the what class actions mean in the big picture of, of labor law, what, why, they, why it's important one way or the other whether or not employers can use these things that prevent their employees from joining a class action. Could you sort of explain that? Yeah, there, there are obvious benefits to a class action. Um, number one, the more people that are in a class, the bigger the damages can potentially be. Mm -hmm bigger the damages are, the more likely you are to get a much, much better plaintiff's attorney to represent you. If you're just, you know, Joe Smith, who worked a little bit of overtime and got stiffed on $1,000 of overtime pay, odds are you're not going to get the greatest plaintiff's attorney if you get any plaintiff's attorney yeah. to even and you represent might not you even, in that. And you might not even decide to bring it because the hassle of going through it, you might decide why if you're just one person, why do it? Right? Yeah, why bother? So... Yeah. That's one of the concerns from the employee side of this is that if you uphold class waivers, that a lot of these claims will just kind of go by the board. So an employer can more easily get away with, you know, stealing 
$500 from 20 employees and then individually the, and not have to worry about them each bringing a claim against them. And then the employers that are, that are doing things above board um, are at a competitive disadvantage against against those companies. So, it, it, you know, it seems like it would ripple outward. Pretty much. Right. So, so there's a lot here besides just class actions. There's also the way uh, employers run their businesses, them having to deal with competition from other folks who may not necessarily be as um, um, upstanding as they are. There, there are a lot of underlying issues here beyond just employees' ability to act collectively. So there's a lot of moving parts here, and the stakes are already pretty high. But one uh, thing, there was yet another sort of bump in the road here, which you ably describe, and that's that the um, the DOJ kind of switched sides during the course of the litigation. Can you tell us about why that happened and how that sort of creates a unique dynamic here? Yeah, they didn't kind of switch sides. They completely went in the opposite <laughs> direction. Um, Don't let me hedge on here, Vin. Thank you. Hold my feet to the fire. So uh, during the cert stage when the yeah. NLRB, and it's actually three consolidated cases. Yeah. So one of them involves the NLRB. The other two involve uh, private businesses. One is a software company. The other is Ernst & Young. So when they were asking the Supreme Court to take the case, the DOJ, which was still when President Obama was in office, took the NLRB's side and asked the Supreme Court to hear the issue and asked it to rule in favor of the NLRB. Now, let me guess, Trump threw a monkey wrench in those works. <laughs> a monkey wrench is a good way of putting it. So they went in the completely opposite direction and they flipped over the DOJ, that is, to the employer side. And that almost never happens, right? The, this idea of two of the government arguing against, you know, that itself. Yeah, right. you, you know, it's uh, interesting. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, about a week before the argument, was giving like a little Q&A type session at, I believe it was Georgetown, and mm -hmm. she said this would be the first time that she's ever seen that kind of divided argument between the federal government. And she well. would know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, you were there, as, as Amber said, you were there on Monday. You already talked to us about what Justice Ginsburg had to say before it started. Give us a taste of what the, uh, what, what the arguments were like. Um, what, were people, what were people saying? What were the justices saying? Uh, give, sure. us the, give us the, the lay of the room there a little bit. Well, to the DOJ point, they actually didn't make an issue out of it that the, that the DOJ flipped hmm. this position. Never came up. So that was actually kind of uh, interesting by omission that they decided not to focus on that at all. As far as the actual argument yeah. goes, it's actually pretty, uh, pretty much fell in line with what most people were expecting. The four liberal justices were very, very adamant in their support of the NLRB position and in their support of employees. They took a very broad view of this whole thing. Um, I believe at one point Justice Breyer said something to the effect of, well, I don't see how you, you're referring to the employer side. I don't see how you can win without totally undermining labor law as it's been since FDR was in office. Yeah, yeah. So that's that, a like, pretty, about, about like gutting the New Deal or something. That's a pretty <laughs> bold yeah. statement. Like, this is going to undo all of labor law. What are you thinking? <laughs> yeah. You can't go much bigger or bolder than that. Right. That's about as broad as you can get. Um, and what about the conservative wing of the court? They so the conservative justices were asking much more technical questions. Mm -hmm. They weren't necessarily focusing on labor law going back to, you know, the New Deal. They were kind of sticking more towards, you know, civil procedure and what, you know, what rules of individual forums are there. Mm -hmm. There was a lot more of a precise set of questions that they were asking. Mm -hmm. And also they were a lot uh, quieter. Um, Justice 
Thomas, which is not unusual, didn't ask any questions. Mm -hmm. Surprisingly, Justice Gorsuch, who kind of has now a bit of a reputation as being vocal during oral arguments, Mm -hmm. never spoke up. So in an hour long. Oh, interesting. And he aligns himself yet again with the Thomas way. (laughs) Like we've talked a lot (laughs) about that. Well, that was coming from their writing. And now maybe it'll happen in the questioning. I don't know. (laughs) It was actually fun watching uh, Justice Thomas and Breyer have kind of a little side joking session at one point where they were, Lord knows what they were talking about, but they were having a great time among themselves. I mean, if nothing else, I like hearing that the court's collegial, you know, not in their writing, but with each other. So after these arguments, after the arguments that you attended, sort of a strange news story came out about the NLRB. Could you sort of walk us through that? Yeah, because this case needs more twists and turns. Yeah, right. (laughs) Jesus. Um, So at one point in the argument, Justice Roberts asked the NLRB's general counsel a hypothetical. So the NLRB, remember, they were arguing on their own behalf since the DOJ wasn't arguing for them. So he asked them a hypothetical about whether... You know, if employers had a clause instead of not allowing class actions completely, if they had something in there that said, well, you can pursue a claim collectively, but there have to be at least 50 employees that are Mm -hmm. part of it. And it seemed like the NLRB's general counsel, Richard Griffin, kind of misunderstood the question. Mm -hmm. And the lawyers, the justices, they all started speaking over each other. (laughs) They were all trying to twist each other. They were twisting themselves into knots to kind of undo it because Justice Roberts asked one question and Griffin basically answered a different question. Right. So it got a little little convoluted and a little bit messy. And the day after the arguments, Griffin had to send the clerk of the Supreme Court a little note that said he answered inaccurately. Wow. And to oh, like a clarification and notice. To clarify what his answer right. was supposed to be. So, Probably won't change the way that they rule, but it, it's definitely not the way you want arguments to go if you're that guy. It's right. not a great look. Right. Um right. it remains to be seen if it comes up again at all. Yeah. But again, it's not you know, it's not something you want to yeah. have happen to you. So not to make you prognosticate too much, because we are notoriously bad, not just us in this room, but people in general it's predicting what the Supreme Court will do. But I'm terrible at it personally. But, did yeah. you get any sense from being there, which way you think this is going to turn? I mean, you know, if I were handicapping it, the smart money is five to four that they uphold class waivers, um, which will basically make them standard operating procedure for every employment contract for anyone who's not unionized from this point on. That's the smart money. If that actually happens, who knows? Seemed like the liberal justices are definitely four votes in favor of the NLRB. So the only question becomes whether they can pick off that one extra person, whoever it may be. We're talking Kennedy again. <laughs> <laughs> could be, could be Gorsuch. You never yeah. know. Maybe he wants to, you know, start the term, start his Supreme Court tenure off with a, a bit of a surprise here. Interesting. So now we'll all have to do that thing I do, which is I basically have a list of all the cases we're tracking, and it's like Supreme Court bingo, where I'm like waiting for the the opinions to come down and marking them off. So. We'll all be waiting on that bingo. Thanks for bringing this to us, Ben. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. So this week, we thought we would end the show with something to honor the late, great Tom Petty. And we actually have a legal tie-in for this. So can you tell us what we want to talk about with him today, Alex? Yeah, the um, yeah the internet was ripe. Some would say bloated with Tom Petty takes this week, and 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 rightfully so. Um, 
you know, sort of examining his place in the history of rock music. But I, because we're a legal news podcast, wanted to sort of peer into, you know, Tom Petty, the litigant. And we don't have a lot to go on there, but the most recent thing that a lot of our listeners might remember is that um, he got into... We were we were like laughing about it in the meeting. I wouldn't even mm-hmm. be right to call it a, a legal dispute with Sam Smith, but he sort of uh, had a had a dust up with uh, British you know pop singer Sam Smith um, over some similarities between Petty's song "I Won't Back Down" and Sam Smith's "Stay With Me." And if you um, if you maybe don't remember or don't remember those songs, here is uh, a little bit of the Sam Smith song that was in dispute here. Oh, won't you stay? And now, some would say, most sensible people would say, the uh, superior uh, Tom Petty take. So there you have it all laid out, and then... And they sound... A lot of like. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people noticed this comparison, and it sort of became a little bit of a talking point after right. the Sam Smith song came It bubbled out. up in late 2014, and it, the reason I was hemming and hawing up top about what to call it is because it never saw the inside of a courtroom, right, mm-hmm. Bill? Like, right. Yeah, it was... An, and so, you know, it was an exchange of letters between representatives for Petty and representatives for Sam Smith that was, you know, just sort of noting what we have noted here about similarities. And then... You know, it just ended sort of amicably, and Sam Smith sort of withdrew and like gave credit to Tom Petty and his. Yeah, he put a writing credit on on right on the song. Yeah, and so, I and, and I thought you could be instructive here, Bill, because I know that a lot of times this stuff gets pretty acrimonious. I mean, yeah, there's, there's lots of money on the line. There's lots of sort of creative ego on the line. And, yeah, uh, so it, you know, it's not completely unprecedented. This does happen where it's you look at something and it's like these are the same compositions. I mean, <laughs> it, it was the same composition, and we could go to court and argue about it. But this does happen where someone will reach out and talk, but. But the opposite happens a whole lot where, you know, <laughs> yeah. you don't even notice the person. You don't even let the person know. you, And then people are just sued over these kind of disputes all the time. So to see him reach out and be like, you know, well, just I'll put you on the song. Doesn't matter. We're all good. And and we should give credit to Sam Smith, too. I mean, he was the one who sort of politely, uh, you know, demurred on the whole thing. Right. Yeah, but, I mean, I yeah. think to me what I liked the most about this and sort of it giving that vibe of Tom Petty was just a cool, laid-back yeah. fella is he released a pretty lengthy statement and it had things in it. That I'll just read a small portion. About the Sam Smith thing, let me say, <laughs> I've never had any hard feelings towards Sam. All my years of songwriting have shown me these things can happen. So it's like, just very well, and that's cool true, and that's it. what you hear when you when you talk when like th- that's the difference between the way that musicians and copyright attorneys will, and I think the smart copyright attorneys will sound a lot more like the musicians where yeah you know there is a lot of gray area between like you incorporated the song but that happens a lot in music you incorporate you build on previous works and. You know, this does happen. I, I I was inspired by that earlier song, or maybe I wasn't even maybe I wasn't even consciously, Not consciously inspired by it. Yeah. It sort of got sucked in. Um, he, he went on to say, Tom Petty said, "A musical accident, no more, no less." Yeah, totally. I mean, what a cool guy. Well, and so, Sam Smith made, so made five hundred million dollars. <laughs> like right. so, and some Sam Smith gargantuan later amount, won so. a Grammy for this. I mean, it was a right. very popular song at the time. So, right. and another artist perhaps would have been a lot more hardline mm-hmm. about all of this. Mm-hmm. So this is a case where Tom Petty, in fact, did back down. (laughs) (laughs) 
quite a legacy for himself here. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought this was a good one to end our show with today just because I love Tom Petty and this does fall in line with the image we all have of him as mm-hmm. being just a really cool dude, guys. Rest in peace. Amen. Thanks for being with me today, guys. Thanks, Bill. See you next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks, guys. We've always got a lot of people to thank for our show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, Vin Guerreri, and also the contributing reporters this week, Pete Brush, Andrew Strickler, Braden Campbell, and Kelly Now. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about on today's show, you can go to our website, law360.com slash podcast. And if you like things you've heard on the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks, and join us again next week.